Hey, listen, we are in the book of Romans. We have been doing this for actually several months now, and uh, we're just finished chapter 5. There's going to be kind of a switch today. We are moving from the point where Paul is talking about justification to sanctification. And what those two words mean is justification is what happens in its completeness when we make a decision to give our lives to Christ. It's the justification, part of our salvation, that the moment we receive Christ as our Savior, our eternity is set, we are forever saved, we are completely in his family, nothing, including ourselves, can change that. Then justification begins. I mean, sorry, not justification, sanctification begins. Uh, Sanctification is the process from the day that we receive Christ as our Savior to the day that we die of us hopefully becoming more like Jesus. It's the uh, act of us being a better reflection of him. And so it's kind of taking a turn at this point. And I want you to see that today he's really trying to help us understand uh, that there are some key things Uh, to our growing in Christ-likeness. There are some key things to us actually becoming more like Jesus. And so he's going to talk today about being dead to sin and alive in Christ. And so let's read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Here's what it says. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his." We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness." For sin will, no, will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. There's five kind of big points I want you to see here in this passage. Let's start with this one. Do not take advantage of grace. Do not take advantage of grace. Uh, before we read Romans 6, 1 and 2 again, I want to remind you of what we just came out of Romans 5. At the end of Romans 5, Paul says, Hey, listen, it doesn't matter how many sins you've ever committed, doesn't matter how bad they've been or how many they've been, no matter how big the stack or pile of sins is, God's grace to forgive is even greater. And so he's just said that, and so then he asked this question, look at Romans 6, 1 and 2 again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
So let me just kind of show you a little picture here, kind of help us get this in our minds. So if this is our big pile of sin, this is all the things we've ever done that have displeased God, all of our disobedience, all of our selfishness, all of the things that we've ever done, the, the reality is God's word says that his grace is bigger and it can cover our sins. Now Paul is saying here, oh wow, you got this big pile of God's grace, that's cool. Uh, it just is kind of human thinking then to go, how can we receive more of God's grace? We sin more. Let's just, let's just sin as much as we possibly can. And that way we'll receive even more grace from God, right? Doesn't that make human sense? In fact, in Paul's day, there were actually a, a sect of Christians that were espousing this doctrine. They were teaching this doctrine. They were trying to live it. And Paul's response to them is this. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? What? So, okay, I get it. No matter how much you've sinned, God's grace is bigger. And now you really think that to get more of God's grace, you're going to purposely and intentionally sin more? That is crazy. That is really kooky talk there, folks. All right? Any doctrine... Any doctrine that encourages or supports or justifies sin is heresy. Never forget that. Any point of doctrine that anybody says that justifies some kind of sin as being somehow good in and of itself is heresy. Now, we hear that and we think, how stupid. <laughs> Nobody would do that. Come on. Nobody would say, hey, I know I've sinned a lot, but let me go out and sin more so I'll get more of God's grace. Nobody would intentionally and purposely go out and sin, would they? Well, perhaps not that intentional, perhaps not that obnoxious. But before we get too judgmental, let me ask the question. When we come to that why in the road and we are faced with the temptation of either going our own way and committing sin, or doing what we know God wants us to do. God's word says it. How many of us say, oh, I'll do this just one more time because I know God will forgive me. I'll do this just one time because I know God will forgive me. Oh, I'll go ahead and do it because I know God will forgive me. My guess is that I'm not alone in this room. And that there are times when all of us at that why in the road say, yes, I know God will forgive me and I shouldn't do it. And I'm going to do it anyway. It's the same thing, folks. It's the same exact thing. We are choosing purposely in that moment to thumb our nose at God and say, I'm going to do what I want to do because I want to do it. And it doesn't matter what you say because I know you will forgive me. Folks, that is taking advantage of God's grace. And my guess would be that almost everybody in this room, if not everybody, is guilty of that at some time. We need to take God's grace seriously. We need to take God's grace very seriously. Why? Because God the Father paid for the opportunity to connect with us by sending his son to die for us. It was costly. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross with his own body and his own blood. 
He paid a heavy price. For us now to say, I appreciate it, God. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just going to do this little thing over here because I know you're going to be okay with it anyway. Folks, we are really just saying, God, your grace is pretty cheap. It's pretty cheap. Paul doesn't mince words here. He wants us to understand that, that we shouldn't take advantage of God's grace. Yes, we've been sanctified. Yes, we've been forgiven. Yes, when we uh, receive Christ as our Savior, all of our sins are forgiven, past, current, and future. They're all forgiven. But that doesn't mean now we just choose to sin like crazy because we know that God will forgive us. That's taking advantage of God's grace. And he strictly warns us against such a thought process. So even though we don't do it as a matter of doing it as much as we can, I would say we are probably guilty at times of saying, okay, God, I'll do it just one more time. Just one more time. Because I know you'll forgive me in the end. Then Paul paints us this wonderful picture that baptism pictures our death to sin. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's just been uh, finished preaching for several chapters about our sin and God's grace and how far apart those are. Next week, we're going to baptize some people uh, right here in this baptistry. Well, trust me, there's one back there, okay? You'll see it next week, okay? There's a baptistry back there. We're going to baptize some people. And here at Fellowship of Grace, we have chosen to baptize people in the biblical sense by immersion. Now, just think about this for a minute. Look at the picture Paul is saying that baptism pictures our death and burial with Christ. He's saying, just look, just how Jesus died a physical death and was put in the ground and was buried, we are showing and testifying to everybody, if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, that we not only identify with his death, but we also have experienced a kind of death, a death to our old life, a death to our old sinful self. When we do baptisms around here, especially when I talk to children about it, I tell them, hey, you're going to do like a little one-act play. You're going you're to portray to everybody else uh, what you have already done. Because the reality is, in the moment where you gave your life to Jesus, where you were indeed born again, the reality is you were dead to your sin and made alive in Christ. Sprinkling, pouring, splashing, every other way to get water on somebody, none of these properly portray burial like immersion does. Jesus was baptized by immersion. Every baptism we see in the New Testament is by immersion. And so we do that here. But it's not just because it's a tradition it's not just because uh, we're Baptists and so we have to do it that way. We do it that way because it's the biblical method because it paints a picture that we believe Jesus died and was buried just like our sins were put to death. 
And then just as Christ rose from the dead with a glorified and perfect body, we are raised out of the water in baptism to symbolize the birth of our new life in Christ. Our old life is dead and our new life is now alive. And so baptism pictures our death to sin. Now, think about that word for a minute. It's not that baptism pictures our slowing down of sin. It's not that, that baptism portrays our minimalization of sin. It's that baptism portrays our death to sin. Now, folks, except for Jesus, death is pretty final. Death is pretty final. Except for the power of God to resurrect some people in the New Testament. By the way, I was trying to figure out the other day about how many funerals I've been to in my life. And uh, because I sang at a lot of funerals in high school and college and, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, made some money that way because when people didn't have a singer, you know, they had to hire somebody. And I've probably been to somewhere between three and 400 funerals. Not once has anybody come back to life. Not once. It's pretty final, folks. Paul's using that word specifically because he wants us to understand, folks, you, this is not where you have been like minimalizing sin. You're dead to it. It's final. It's put to death. And then he says that the power, well, he continues on and says the power of sin has been put to death completely. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, which we have, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Our old human nature, that part that we talked about last week being born into Adam's family, not, not the Adam's family, but, but Adam's family, we're born in Adam's family when we were physically born, with that sin gene, like blue eyes or brown hair, when we did that, uh, the, the, the sin just had a power over us. It's part of who we were. But when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, when we give our life to him, that old life dies. Now, as long as we're in this physical body, we are not going to reach perfection. This is not teaching a kind of uh, Christian perfection. Uh, if you're here today and, and you're a guest and you, and you think that uh, a church is full of people that think they're perfect, wrong church. We don't think that. In fact, nobody here is perfect. But it doesn't mean we don't try to be. Listen, I'm not a very good basketball player, but I try to be. It doesn't mean we can't try. It doesn't mean that we don't put forth effort to do it. But what we need to understand is, folks, that old life where sin reigned in our life even in this passage, it says we're no longer enslaved to sin. That implies we were. We were enslaved to it. We couldn't do anything to stop sinning. It's part of our problem. So we were set free from our sin, which means we were previously imprisoned by it. We're not perfect by any means. But we are no longer enslaved to it. It's no longer a situation as though we can't help ourselves. We can we are, set pow uh, we are set free from the power of sin. 
It no longer has a complete hold on us. Now, I'm not 90, like the video showed, like those guys think I am. Uh, Of course, I might be close to it when I talk about this. Uh, There's an old comedian named Flip Wilson. All the old people are giggling. Uh, And and Flip Wilson uh, had all these different characters that he did. He was a comedian. And um, back when you didn't have to curse every other word to be funny, and uh, because you had to be smart, and he had this one phrase that he always used. Do you remember what it was? The devil made me do it. And it was kind of funny because he always worked it in uh, to the, the skit in a kind of a funny way, and the devil made him do it. All of his characters would say that. There's really some theological truth to that because when we are in Adam's family, when we are without Christ, we can't do anything to stop sinning. We just don't have the power to do it. We don't have the ability to do it. In our own human self, we don't do that. We can't do that. Otherwise, we would have no need for a Savior. But folks, when we give our lives to Jesus, the power of sin has been put to death. Not hurt, not injured, but put to death. We no longer are in entrenched in it we are no longer obsessed by it we are no longer controlled by it and remember christianity is a replacement process and so the power of sin has been put to death and we have been made alive in christ look at verses 8 through 11 it says now if we have died with christ we believe that we will also live with him we know that christ being raised from the dead will never die again Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now these are important words here at the end. Well, they're all important, but but this this phrase right here, you also, uh, so you also must consider yourselves. See, folks, you need to think this way. You need to think this way. You need to consider yourself as dead to your sin and alive to God. That's the replacement process. He's declaring that we should believe and then act as though it is true because it is. See, sometimes we act contrary to our new nature. But Paul's saying, no, no, no. Act according to your new nature. You are dead to sin. You are alive in Christ. Act like it. Think like it. We have to kill the old parts of our life that still try to wrap us up in sin. We need to kill the old habits, the old places, the old friends, the old things that draw us into that old sinful lifestyle and replace them with new habits new friends, new places, new things that encourage us to live our new lives out in Christ. There's a young man in my core group. It's a group of, we have six in ours, that meet every week and, and study God's Word. And, and I asked him a question. I said, hey, have you seen uh, progress in your spiritual life over the last six months? He goes, yeah, I have, considerable amount. I said, what do you attribute that to? What do you attribute that to? Because when I see success, I want to leverage it. I want to help other people do what he's doing. He said, well, I'm hanging around you guys. We're reading God's word every week. I'm 
kind of held accountable to doing that. That's helping me. I'm surrounded by you guys that are encouraging me and helping me and challenging me. And just my, my atmosphere has changed. My surroundings have changed. And it's really helping me to live. He didn't say these words, but really what he meant was, it's really helping me to live dead to my sin and alive in Christ. Now, folks, there are some people who make the decision to follow Jesus and they try to somehow have some level of success in becoming like him without changing anything in their lives. Folks, that's a huge challenge. Almost an impossibility. Listen, if somebody has a, uh, just to do something obvious here, if somebody has a drinking problem before they give their lives to Jesus and they go hang around their old friends in their old bars doing the old things with them, but they go in deciding, yeah, I'm going to drink a Diet Coke tonight, what are the chances that they're going to fall back into that same pattern? It's pretty significant. But that's not any different than anything else. If the sins that we have been plagued with we access those sins through uh, media, through relationships, through places. If we don't change those things, we'll never be able to live dead to our sins and alive to Christ. But we need to consider ourselves so. We need to act like it's really true. And so we need to actively live out the truth that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. We need to actively live it out. Not just know it, not just consider it, but actually live it. Look in verses 12 through 14. It says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace Paul repeats here that we are no longer to let sin reign in our lives again it doesn't mean we don't occasionally slip up and give into that but that's no excuse that's no excuse to accept that but it does mean that sin does not master us. It doesn't control us. It doesn't own us anymore. Then he uses several phrases in this passage, in these couple of, of verses, for our bodies. He uses the term mortal body. And by the way, guess why it's mortal? Because of sin. Because of sin. That's why it's mortal. He uses that phrase. He uses the term members. Our members, our hands, our feet. Our eyes, our ears, they're all members of our body, which can also be members of sin. He says they're like instruments. They're instruments of either righteousness or sinfulness. You see, even though most of the time sin starts in our minds and in our hearts, the reality is it's almost always played out in our behavior. It's almost always played out in our behavior. And so Paul's saying, folks, listen, use the Spirit of God in you to control your body and your behavior. His last phrase here says that we're no longer under law but grace. We're no longer under, but this is not an excuse to be more sinful. 
It should motivate us to be more holy. God's grace was purchased at a very high price. And to ignore it, though it doesn't exist, is the act of someone who maybe doesn't really understand God's grace. Folks, if we can uh, somehow uh, make some decision to follow Christ and we still live completely uh, in our old life, nothing changing, not feeling any uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit, and not finding any problem just continuing to sin, at some point we got to ask the question, is there really a change that's been made? I, I can't seem to stop uh, being lazy. I can't stop uh, uh, yelling at my wife and cursing at her. I can't stop lusting. I can't stop, I can't stop, I can't stop, I can't stop. Maybe there's a reason for that. Again, we're not talking about perfection, folks. But the reality is, we should be coming, we should be becoming more like Jesus all the time. Are we more like Jesus today than we were a year ago? For those of us who've been Christians a long time, are we making any progress at all or have we kind of tapped out? Paul is challenging us here. He's saying, look, we've talked a lot about justification. We've talked a lot about how good God's grace is and how it has overcome our sinfulness. And no matter how sinful we've been, if we will realize we can't do anything to fix that sin, and we give that to Jesus, and we trust that what he did on the cross is enough to pay for our sins, we are completely and totally saved. But that should start a process of us becoming more like Jesus. If it all stops right there. And by the way, I've seen a lot of people's lives do that. A, a, a kid goes to youth camp, makes some emotional decision because all of his friends made it to pray and receive Christ. Nothing ever changes in their life. They become an adult. They can't understand why their life is totally and completely racked by sin, why their life is totally and completely out of control, and they can't seem to control any area of their life. And as we talk and pray, many of them come to the conclusion that I made this decision uh, in some hasty way without really making a decision. And I've really never had a life-changing experience with Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's talking about here, folks. When we really give our lives to him, we are dead to sin and we are alive to Christ. We don't become perfect the next day, but there is a process of us becoming more perfect, more like Jesus, less uh, controlled by our sinfulness. And so he's challenging us. He's challenging us. Choose. When we get to that why in the road and we really want to do what we know we should not do, remember God's grace. Remember the price that was paid for us to be able to choose the right path. And don't thumb our nose at God. Don't spit on his grace and choose to follow him and be alive in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that guides us, that teaches us, that challenges us. Father, thank you for your patience with us. 
If there's anyone here who has not given their life to you, I pray that today your spirit would be knocking on their heart's door, that they would hear you and that they would let you in. Father, I pray for the rest of us who have already crossed over that line of faith and given our lives to you. Father, help us. Help us to not take your your wonderful grace for granted. Help us not to just uh, use it as an excuse for our own sinfulness. God, forgive us when we have done that. Help us as we stand at that why for the next temptation that we will choose to embrace your love and your mercy and your grace and step away from our selfishness. Step away from the things that bring you dishonor. Lord, we know that in this life and in this physical sinful body, we will never reach perfection on this planet. But God, thank you for your Holy Spirit in us. Help us to make progress. Help us to be changed by you so that we might reflect your glory to this world who needs to see you desperately. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.